Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Welcome to another episode of In the Landscape. I almost said welcome to another lovely day because it (laughs) it is, and I hope it is for you, our listeners, wherever you are. I am Kate Sadler, one of your hosts of this program, and I'm here in studio with Charles. Good to be here. Yes, good to be here. As Uh, always. Yeah, we're trying out a little bit of a new studio setup, so if you hear something different in the sound... That's what it is. Our editors will help us sort that out. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a new space for us. I mention editors every five minutes because they're so essential to the process. Obviously, I mean, that, that probably almost goes without saying, but it's this, you know, audio medium and um, mm-hmm. getting it right is a big deal. Yeah. Here we are. Nice sunny day here in Texas. And you are off to New York again. Almost a surprise trip next week. Right, um, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey. Possibly Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Spring is springing. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. you know, that people start to shake off that winter dormancy and start to look outside. And even if it's still cold where you are and things haven't started to come up, you know, the little sprouts from the, from the ground, it's that sense, that anticipation that it's coming and you want to enjoy it as much as possible. And things like dormant season pruning, like fruit tree pruning. It's like doing your taxes. Mm, oh, <laughs> There's like a period where, let's say, you're not going to do the dormant season pruning in the fall. It's too soon. Mm-hmm. And then there's often holidays, a new year. It could be done in December. So like, there's properties where we do it in December. And then when it gets to be toward the end of February, property managers, homeowners, others, they realize, oh boy, we need to prune these fruit trees before they start growing. Mm-hmm. And then, so we've had some requests for that. Well, and I would say a wonderful development in our practice has been that people are reaching out to you in some of these cool locations for the training, you know, so mm-hmm. that you're able to pass on the knowledge and then folks are equipped to kind of carry it forward themselves. Like, they don't right. call you every five minutes, which, mm-hmm. you know, is you can't be everywhere at once. So it actually really works well for you because you get a chance to participate in more landscapes than you would otherwise have time for. Because mm-hmm. you're, you're not just the property manager of a single space. Anymore. And the smarter pruning, it's often thinning and it's often during when the plants are dormant. So it leads to it's less labor over the long term. It could be a lot less labor. Right. Awesome. Okay. So you're getting ready to do that. And uh, we hold down the fort here in Texas while you're gone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We also try to record podcasts in advance so that we have things to release on our usual schedule. Thank you all for tuning in and downloading regularly. I think we say, please subscribe, rate, review. If you get a chance, we're off here putting out content. And if you like it, let us know. And you can do that wherever you listen. So we're mm-hmm. on pretty much every platform we've been able to find <laughs> so far. And if you have any feedback for us, we certainly appreciate it. We haven't done corrections in a while, but you had a correction you wanted to make for our last episode about water and just a terminology correction, I think. I may have mixed up. So there's with stormwater, but there's retention, which is more or less a permanent place where where there's water, a lake, a pond. So when it rains, that low spot could fill up. But even when it's not raining, there's generally still water there. And then detention means you're slowing it down. So it's coming from a roof, a parking lot. It's an area that 
more or less has no water in it when there's not a storm. And it fills up. And then instead of that water rushing into the storm drains, it slowed down by like a matter of hours. I mean, maybe days. And I may have gotten the those two confused. <laughs> well, it's, I'm, I'm picturing our drives as a family in California. We would drive up to Montana or down to Disneyland in Southern California. And you pass those reservoirs that have this really obvious water line where it's like, because oh, of right. course we're on a summer vacation. And so it's been dry for a while there. And you can really see, yes, those reservoirs for the most part still have water in them, but that water level changes a lot, especially in a climate like that. I would imagine some something like this area, Houston, it's more like detention. Well, there's certainly reservoirs for drinking water and things like that, but there's so much necessity to move that water out more quickly. You uh, have like those bayous right. that you're, you're always mentioning are sort of like slow moving and and yet the water can come down fast and hard during certain seasons. Yeah, thank you. I was actually just chatting with someone today about how, you know, we had a heavy rain on Monday and the backyard is still, still has standing water in it, which mm-hmm. you just, that's unsustainable. And so you're looking for solutions to kind of get that water moving along sooner than later. So. Right. So areas that are prone to flooding, I think it's fair to say would have a lot of detention. Mm-hmm. So it would be areas that would look like an empty lake. And then when it rained, they would fill up. I guess I haven't studied it close enough, but I imagine be like, like within days, it's emptying. Well, and you were saying, I think, because there's this one park nearby that we like to walk around that's Willow Fork Park, oh, right. which is a city park, I think. Mm-hmm. They have these naturalistic looking ponds with a level change. So there's a little waterfall and a path that you can, like a little bridge that goes over kind of in between the two ponds. And you've observed that it's probably a detention system as well, that it looks oh, gorgeous. Right. It's mm-hmm. gorgeous. I mean, we've taken photos of it at sunset and things, and there's mm-hmm. birds flying through and the reeds and grasses and trees. But ultimately, it can serve this very important function to kind of keep water moving on behalf of this area, which certainly needs it. <laughs> right, correct. That there's, it's not just a single use where mm. it's like a office complex where there's this giant, looks like a dry lake, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily so appealing. But if it's programmed and there's, there's another one called, I think it's Rick Rice Park that I visited. And that's, it, it's like a giant dry lake, but it's beautifully landscaped. It would fill up during a storm. It's well-programmed though. There's paths around it. There's places to sit. There's a pergola. Hmm. All right. So that's just a little coda, I guess you might say, to our episode from last week. So clearly we could talk about water forever, in addition to a few of the topics that we return to over and over again. But today's topic is actually inspired by your recent visit to New York City and a stroll that you did through Central Park to an area of the park that you and I have had an opportunity to visit together but is a section of the park that opened a couple years ago, I want to say. I think say. it was 2016, I believe. It, yeah, it was it, like it, while we were living there. It reopened. Yes. And there was some fanfare. It might have been the ASLA Journal. I think it was probably in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. It might have been in some of the local papers also. So we're referring to the southeast corner of the park and the Hallett Nature Sanctuary, Sanctuary which is a fairly wild area in a totally planned park. I mean, we've said on this show before, every, you know, I mean, some of the natural forms are probably originally there, but every tree was designed, every 
a lot of the grading was designed. And yet there's this area that has this naturalistic ecology going on within its borders. Right. So can you uh, tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Okay. We're going to take some info directly from Central Park nyc.org's website, which is a nice description of this beautiful nature sanctuary. And it says, the smallest of Central Park's three woodland landscapes, this hidden four-acre preserve offers views of the pond and lower park, in addition to the rustic trails and world of wildlife within. It was closed to the public from 1934 until 2001. Since 2013, daily visiting Hours and tours have invited visitors to explore one of the park's most pristine natural habitats. Gives us the accurate dates and a great description of it. And of course, it's on that southern edge, you know, the tall buildings and great hotels and of, of Central Park South and, you know, the Plaza Hotel area. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were mentioning it's featured in a film. I think it's in Home Alone. There's a historic architectural bridge which is features prominently there's like a section of the pond right so listeners may have seen that and i in that probably featured in many i don't know pop culture media right because it's such a busy and popular part of the park and yet there's this quiet space and they even as as you observe from the printed material there they have to manage it carefully you know they even have specific times that you're that you're allowed to kind of go in and out to visit that area because too much visiting would impact it adversely. Right, correct. So the idea that we wanted to talk about today, inspired by this little section of Central Park, is this notion of having wild spaces, even in our managed gardens, our managed municipalities, and how do we strike a balance between having, you know, the highly landscaped Gardens that fulfill every feature of the program that we want. Barbecues and fire pits and Mm -hmm. seats and, you know, children's areas, as you may have heard on a recent episode. When in fact, the wild, the natural landscape is one that is often for us the most restorative. Right. And a couple of like legendary psychological, environmental psychological researchers, the Kaplan's. Rachel and Stephen that are from that are out of a university in Michigan, they've done, they're sort of the, like the pioneers in this research, how being exposed to nature is restorative. And so even in the beginning of one of the papers I was looking at, which they were quoted, Frederick Law Olmsted is quoted as saying in like the 1860s, how, how nature, how it's like, I think he more or less said, it's like a scientific fact that nature is restorative. So it's, not a new idea. And so I would, I would put forward, think of some of the most popular places in the U.S., some of these public spaces. They look much wild, quote-unquote, wilder. The High Line, Millennium Park, plenty of places which are very de- designed, Battery Park, Brooklyn Bridge Park. <laughs> so this craving of, as technology keeps increasing and devices and like the demands of a modern world, it appears people are craving nature and the sense of, of rest you get when you're exposed to nature. Well, and there's certainly a beauty to a well-designed landscape that merges with 
human buildings, the, the New York City skyline, for example, that is, there is a, a special quality to those landscapes, to be sure, you know, a beautifully landscaped front facade to a home. But the home is there. And so there's always this sense that you're still looking at some human man-made feature. And some of the research does suggest that having the sense even that there is nothing but landscape or nothing but natural landscape beyond what you're seeing is the most restorative. So looking mm-hmm. at a house plant would provide a certain measure of restoration. But of course, you're still in your house. You're still next to your cell phone. <laughs> you right. The dogs are still barking in the background. And so we can talk a little bit today about how you design, you know, almost like tricks of the eye to help you feel that sense of, you know, that this isn't the end of nature, that there's something yet beyond it that you can't quite see that's just sort of out of sight. Right. Well, some of the terms that the Kaplans have coined, which help describe why why nature is restorative, and then more or less, once you know why, then you can design a landscape that has these features. So some of them are extant, which is where you can't see where where it ends. So Olmsted did that in Central Park and in Britain in a Prospect Park, even better, I would mm, say. Yes, I've heard that. There's very large meadows where there's like an open grassy area. And then in the distance, there are shade trees that begin to close off the meadow, but you can see beyond it. And you, but you can't see where the next meadow ends. So it's, it gives the illusion that this, this green space goes on forever. Well, and I hate, I mean, I don't want every episode of this podcast to be me reciting what I, what I saw on a Monty Don episode. <laughs> I think we were catching up on some, some, one of his earlier programs about English gardens and how one of the innovations in, say, 17th century was this idea that the landscape beyond the manicured landscape or the controlled landscape of these great estates was bringing in the distant hills or the distant, you know, Mm -hmm. veils or whatever. I'm sure he articulates it much better. And yet, even in these sort of highly designed gardens, you'd still have, as you do in Central Park, something like the Ramble or the Hallett Nature Preserve. Uh, Sanctuary. Sanctuary. I keep keep thinking of preserve. But but it's a preserve, Uh, too. (laughs) um, You know, that you still have like a woods, a little woods in your garden. So Mm -hmm. you have somewhere that's like just a nod to that natural landscape. And then the sense that if you happen to have access to a view of some kind, you create that extant feel by incorporating that, bringing that into the lo- the closer landscape. Right. So, I mean, I would encourage, in a way, anything that's designed, there's a sensitivity to contrast. You know, so if things that are not designed, maybe they might lack contrast, like it might not be hard to understand what you're seeing. It might not be legible. We've used that word before. So have contrast in a landscape. There'd be areas that may have a finer level of detail or of pruning or of being manicured. Maybe the texture of the plants is finer. Now, if the whole landscape is like that, then you're not going to have contrast. If every inch of the, it could be a very large space, is equally treated, then there's not contrast. Well, that's a good point. I mean, even on some of our hikes, there's often that period of time during the hike where you are just sort of in the woods, you know, and you're watching, you're watching where you're placing your feet and there's not, 
you know, it's beautiful. You're outdoors. You've got the fresh air. The trees are magnificent. But you really do need to get to those points of like an overlook or maybe there's a stone wall from an old farm or the creek that kind of cuts through the monotony of the woods. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying sort of missing the forest for the trees. There is a lot of variety even within possibly the tree species that are around you that one can develop an appreciation for. But that contrast then are those resting places where you're really like, oh, gosh, let's take this in. So I can definitely I can imagine that as I'm thinking of even the wildest places we've been. Right, I agree. So another principle that the Kaplans use is involuntary attention. So if I'm, let's say we'll go back to taxes again. (laughs) If I'm doing a task that requires a lot of focus, so that's, I'm giving my attention to that. But over time, you get fatigued from that. So that would be voluntary attention where you're, you're focusing on a task, which is, of course, part of life. It's perfectly natural. <laughs> so involuntary attention, it's easy to have that experience when you're, in, when you're exposed to nature. And it could be a designed nature. And so that's the grasses moving, the bamboo rustling, the leaves catching the sunlight. That would be involuntary attention where it's pleasing. It's not demanding. And that is an important part of being restored from nature. Well, and it's interesting because I think one of our most recent and most popular episodes so far is the one about writing or speaking about the landscape. And then, of course, the work that you do designing landscapes. And of course, it's so essential to get into the landscape and, and be in it, maybe without any agenda. And then the creativity that stems from that, because you've, you've been out and observing and experiencing, then can fuel the work. So, you know, if you're having writer's block or a design block, <laughs> and I'm sure this isn't news to many of us, you have to give yourself permission sometimes to like take a break and go for a walk and just be out there. And whatever the block is sometimes untangles itself just by virtue of being out there. Mm-hmm. I did that. There was that coastal New York project. And so I needed to finalize the drawings <laughs> for the person who does the rendering that they could do their work and then we can meet the client. And so there's a place in our greater neighborhood where it's a series of lakes in a neighborhood. And so I went there with my drawing apparatus and there were cormorants swimming and there was a beautiful picnic table I set up at. And it was enough, there was enough of that of interest but it wasn't distracting. Mm-hmm. So these things that are, I mean, nature is really not, dis- doesn't tend to be distracting. It's, you can take it or leave it. Oh, that's a pretty sunset. And you'll, maybe you'll focus on it. Where as opposed to, let's say, watching television, it captures your attention. Where I don't, I'm not in control of my attention after a period of time. And then you sort of come to like, oh my gosh, it's like 30 minutes have gone by. I'm not even aware. There's not really that issue with nature. Mm. Sure. Now, one of the keys potentially to achieving this is, I guess, selective editing, but the idea that maybe what's there is useful, I guess. I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. I'm thinking in particular of you know, how plants take time to develop and that ecosystems take time to kind of develop and inter interweave in the way that they do so beautifully. And so if you're thinking of designing a new garden in a new space that you've just come into, perhaps a part of the process is not to program every inch of it and to say, uh, is there a space that we can leave 
And one of the great examples of this actually comes from the island of Manhattan again, where if you haven't been to the very northern tip in Inwood Park, there's actually an old growth forest, which is just, it sort of blows your mind that any section of that, you know, densely populated Mm -hmm. little island is old growth forest, but it is. And those magnificent tulip trees that are really, you know, they're kind of like the redwood equivalent on the East Coast. I think they're kind of the biggest. They can be, I don't know if they're 200 feet tall, but they're over 150 feet tall. They're Mm. enormous. Yeah. And the trunks would be, it would take many people with their hands like many, a circle of many people to wrap around it. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't know what would it be. It's, it's, they're enormous. Well, and on the West Coast, you know, even something like Muir Woods, there was a time where the preservation of trees was not a priority. And we do have friends and relatives in the, in the forest industry, responsible management of forests and use of forest materials is a very important thing. <laughs> so we're all for it. And just to a certain extent, we don't want to make it seemed like that's not the case, but the preservation of these little gems is, is really kind of a treat if you know where to go to, to check them out. So the idea would be to maybe consider doing that as you're doing the inventory that we're such advocates of in terms of the design process, as you're thinking through how you want to manage the space that you are moving into or designing, whichever. Right. And the areas, so an area that maybe doesn't call out for a certain program, it's not like a level spot to gather or have a vista or, or whatever that might be, or for parking or for the house. You have to leave some of those remnants that there's value in just leaving them and that like there might be native plants there and like letting the leaves collect there. And that over time, this Hallett Nature Center, nature area, that over time, a patina develops mm-hmm. and that a richness can develop in an area that is just allowed to, to do its thing. Well, and in our own yard, I mean, you can achieve this relatively quickly. You're choosing to mow beds, essentially. So you're mowing certain areas of the lawn, leaving others. So the idea of like prairie planting or wildflowers, that's a, that's a theme that can come together relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. You're right. So by the backyard is, is rectilinear. We planted some plants, some shrubs and trees. There are currently no beds, but by not mowing some of the edges and then it, and then there's an island in the middle that we stop mowing start to get wildflowers mm-hmm. i mean it's almost like instant interest at, at a very low cost and there might be there's what's called a seed bank so in the soil any soil anywhere in the world there are dormant seeds and that could stay there i mean i'm not a scientist but for decades more or less or for a long period of time and given the opportunity those can start to grow and so you can get surprising wildflowers, all kinds of even trees can come up that might be a native tree that mowing in a way is the most dominant form of suppression. So by mowing an area, you don't really know what's there in that seed bank. When you stop mowing, there could be, you know, it could be things that you don't want, you know, different kinds of pricker bushes and invasive plants, but, but there could be great surprises that start to come up. Great. So that's just one tip to kind of achieve this concept relatively quickly in a small area. I do think a lot of the Bay Area, having grown up there, that these wild spaces are so prevalent. It's ju- it just evolved in a less densely populated way than the East Coast. And so you have places like the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, which, of course, as you go up the coast, farther north, gets even more and more spread out and encompass more acreage. And then 
some of the East Bay regional parks, actually, we, mm. you know, we have photos on our Instagram of the oaks that are in the Sonol regional oh, right. wilderness. And I'm thinking even of Tilden Park, which is closer to like the Berkeley, Oakland area. Mm-hmm. And so you have this hugely, you know, now it's very densely populated. There's a lot of people living there. But these amazing extant wild places where you get into those hills and that really is all you see. And it is tremendously restorative. So getting in the landscape in that way is so special. You know, obviously there's high demand to live in the Bay Area. It wouldn't be quite so expensive. But for those who do get to live there or visit, it's, it's such a special part of, of why that's such a kind of amazing place to be. Mm-hmm. And the, it occurs to me that the nuts and bolts of when you come down to the details. So there's like landscape details. So that would be in a design process, you'd specify what's, what's the ground material. Is it paving? If there's elements such as fences or gates, you specify those. This Hallett nature area, those are very thoughtfully designed. And it, if you weren't aware of it, you would think, oh, they just use some old logs. They build a gate and the paths are delineated in some cases by old logs. It's very intentional, though, and it's, it creates, there's a real palpable effect. There's the hand, there's human hands that made this, but there's elements that are close to their natural form. So there's gates, like you, there's the Adirondack style of more or less where you use timber, but it's not altered much. So you're making railings and fences and gates, and there's twisting branches and and it's, it's put together like a puzzle. And so each one would really be different. There wouldn't be two gates that match. And the furniture also, there's a circular bench, which is one of the higher points of this, of this nature area. So these elements that are designed, or someone gave thought to it, there's so much, rest- I mean, good, good design always has restraint. Even when it's, if, it could be very decorative, but there's still some level of restraint. So the the gates, the benches, the walkway, the more or less the treatment of the path area, it's all thoughtful. They're, they're all materials pretty close to their natural state. There's really no element that I can think of. There's no element that's refined or that's conspicuously made by humans. And so it really sends a message. This is like a calm place. And that might lend itself to kind of a DIY sensibility. Like if you mm-hmm. really, you know, putting right. kind of a split rail fence, I'm not suggesting it's easy to do. <laughs> I don't know that I could do it, but you know, if you want to gather up materials from your own yard and help incorporate that into the design, um, mm-hmm. the pathways and things that you could make sort of you borrow from the landscape in order to, to design the landscape. Right. And so there is still managing that. I mean, they explain from the, th- you know, whether it's like 60 or 70 years when this landscape was not managed, things like wisteria and other like aggressive non-native plants took over. So they're still managing, but there's a way to manage with a lighter hand. So it's not conspicuously, if a tree falls, it can be cut up, let's say, so it's not blocking the path, but just to, to decompose in, in place. And then you get moss and ferns. And, and then with the addition of plants in this space, there are native azaleas, native rhododendron. Throughout the year, there's color, there's interest. There's some magnificent American hollies of different stages. But that's another sort of trick. If you're going to plant, let's say, three native hollies, if they're all the same size, it's going to look like it was designed. 
if you have, if there's contrast, let's say there's a mature one, a medium, and then there's some seedling size ones, that gives the plants that have that are of various ages, it feels more spontaneous. It feels like this might be naturally occurring. It helps with that illusion. So assuming you wanted to do this in your own landscape, imagine for a moment you want to do it through a landscape designer, what would you ask for? Is it possible to have a completely wild design incorporated in your landscape? If that's what you really want, can you kind of insist on that? And are people likely to accede to your wishes as the mm. homeowner? Uh, sure. So tricks for designing like a wilder landscape would be utilizing the plants that are there. So if there are trees and shrubs that are there that are maybe naturally occurring, or that are more mature, that will lend a lot of place and credibility. And then clustering plants, definitely always using odd, trying to use odd numbers of plants, clusters of, of plants. And there's a mixing of materials too. I mean, nature doesn't, there might be a large swath of a certain wildflower, but it's generally not that organized. And there's other plants growing with it. So having I mean, like one technique when you're planting bulbs, if you want to have a more naturalistic approach, you have a handful of them and you throw those on the ground and wherever they land, you plant them. So there's that type of approach could lend to a, to a more spontaneous wild place. You need a certain sort of density of plants though. So having areas where there's a concentration of plants in the short term and then maybe other areas that are more open. If, you ha- if, if it's equally spaced, it, like it lacks, it lacks impact, and it might feel like it's, that it was designed by a person if it's, there's equal plants throughout the space. And then thinking, of, like always, where's the sun? Are these plants going to survive? Even if you're more or less trying to, to intervene with Mother Nature. So even if the plants are going to be maybe receive less care, where they're planted is still very important. Is it? the right plant for the right place. So I would imagine this approach has the potential to also be somewhat ecologically beneficial. You know, again, we've talked a lot about water, having too much of it, having not enough, anything that's inclined to volunteer in your landscape. If you choose not to see it as a weed, depending on whether it's invasive or not, it's probably already suited to the conditions to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And then also this idea, and I think it's championed by the, landscape designer out on Long Island, Edwina Von Gall. Correct, right. The idea that this, you know, oh gosh, the oppressive chemicals that we use to try to manage our landscapes can be dispensed with if we are, you know, a little more tolerant of the variety that might spring up um, Mm -hmm. if we go for a slightly more naturalistic effect. Right, there's plants that are, I mean, if a plant starts to grow in a certain site, it's suitable for that site, you know, it's, with the least amount of intervention. So, I mean, that's this movement toward landscape that require less inputs. When we want to be permaculture would cover that. This like perennial garden movement with grasses and wildflowers. It still has shrubs and trees. I mean, those are v- very tolerant that it's planted like after the establishment period of two or three years. Many of those gardens, the maintenance is quite low and it could be even lower 
if you could tolerate it being a little messier. So it's, you know, <laughs> quote unquote messy. Mm-hmm. Ah, but that messiness we've already established has, interestingly enough, some psychological benefits. So, right. Yeah. I mean, it, it does depend on your aesthetic. There's certainly people, I'm sure at some point we'll do the minimalist garden and that's like mm-hmm. a whole other design aesthetic and a whole other psychological benefit. But for those of us who like the wild a little more than that, you know, this is maybe a style to aim toward, or at least having a little corner of the garden that is a nod to this. I think the idea of having at least one section that's kind of this well, that approach was, is so special. And that house and garden that I studied so carefully in New Orleans, Longview, the owner's favorite part where they would retreat to themselves, it was this corner of the garden that had a wilder feel to it. Mm-hmm. There was enclosure, evergreen shrubs and trees. There was water so there's like the sound of water there's reflection and there were mature trees i think even when they lived there there were mature trees so that was all these formal elements people really so having that in central park there's the ramble that's one of the other woodland areas and then the north sort of quarter or third of central park that has a lot of wild areas so people that have not visited central park i'd encourage you to see the northern part people that know central park well that northern section, there's all kinds of wonder. And, and now some of them are quite designed, but it has a wild feel. Prospect Park has a wild area also. All right. Any parting thoughts before we wrap up on this topic for today? Well, let's see. Like designing a naturalistic landscape, it's thinking carefully of the materials. Things like wood chips, those can be great for paths and areas, pretty low maintenance. I guess that would be the key things that any labor or effort or funds that you spend to try to have it go a long way. And so with the right plant in the right place, the right furniture, let's say that can weather and become more beautiful with age. If there's not thought and given to the materials, it could become overgrown and look messy in a short time. But there are plants that are like big, beautiful ostrich ferns that are more or less going to fill the space. They're going to outcompete weeds. So Given the, if it's really the right plant, it can be pretty self-sustaining and it can be pretty throughout the year. All right. Well, we hope you do find an opportunity to, what do they call it now? Bathing in nature. Forest bathing, <laughs> right. <laughs> Since you get in the landscape, whether it be your own little plot or a forest nearby, just enjoy that soft focus, that mm-hmm. relief that our brains get when we're out amongst nature and until next week thanks for listening thank you bye-bye in the landscape is brought to you by king garden a full-service landscape design care and education company enjoying what you hear on our podcast we encourage you to subscribe rate and review wherever you listen we'd love to hear from you so drop us a line at connect at king gardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details, and also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.